LinkedIn presents. I'm Caleb Bissinger, and this is the next big idea. So, Succession is back. What are people? Um, like... They're economic units. I'm a hundred feet tall. These people are pygmies. But, together, form a market. Okay, right. What is a person? It has values and aims, but it operates in a market. Uh, marriage market. Job market, money market, market for ideas, etc., etc. Uh huh. So everything is a market. <laughs> everything I try to do, people turn against me. Nothing tastes like it used to, does it? Nothing's the same as it was. That's a clip from the hit HBO series, which returned to airwaves for its fourth and final season this past Sunday. The show, for those of you who haven't seen it, centers on Logan Roy, played by Brian Cox. He's the aging chief executive of a media conglomerate called Waystar Royco. And he's also the father of three gigantically entitled, dazzlingly profane children, each of whom believes they are the rightful heir to daddy's throne. Okay, he actually has four kids, but one of them is a complete dope. There's no way he's going to walk away with this whole thing. Apologies to any con heads out there. I think a lot of viewers, myself included, always assumed that Logan's character was based on Rupert Murdoch, who famously dangled the keys to his kingdom before a few of his kids. But Succession's creator, Jesse Armstrong, has said that Murdoch was one of several dynamos who inspired him. Another? Sumner Redstone. This is a guy who went from two theater chains in the Boston area to becoming one of the most important media moguls of our time. That's Rachel Abrams. She's a reporter at the New York Times and the co-author, along with James B. Stewart, of a recent bestseller called Unscripted, the epic battle for a media empire and the Redstone family legacy. Just so your listeners understand how important he is, in his heyday, when he became a full-fledged media mogul, this guy owned Paramount, CBS, Viacom, meaning brands that we all recognize like Nickelodeon, MTV. And these companies were shaping American culture. These companies produced so much of the television that we watched, the movies that we consume. These brands were minting money and they were they were shaping our culture. So he was one of the most influential and important people in Hollywood, in media. Sumner Redstone and Logan Roy have a lot in common. They're both petulant 0.01 percenters who act with impunity. They're both gruff guys who built thriving businesses, got obscenely rich, and then decided their silver spoon-fed kids didn't have the stomachs to succeed them. But the drama in the Redstone story is about more than inheritance. Sumner didn't just refuse to hand over the reins to his daughter, who, unlike Logan's kids, actually strikes me as competent. 
No, he clung to power even as his mind and body began to fail him. Clung on even as he got tangled up in a tawdry love triangle that threatened the business he worked his whole life to build. Another difference here is that while Succession feels like a show without redeeming characters, Rachel's book, Unscripted, kinda does have a hero. It's Sumner's daughter, Sherry, who has to fight to keep her father safe, to keep their family's empire intact, and to help their companies weather the most shameful crisis in their history. So today on the show, we'll step into the world of the Redstones, the real-life succession. Is the truth stranger than fiction? In this case, it's definitely more shocking. I know that may sound like better fodder for a trashy tabloid than a podcast about life-changing ideas. And to tell you the truth, there's not really a big idea in this episode, except that we desperately need better corporate governance in this country. And also maybe this, Few of us will ever play tug of war with a multi-billion dollar media empire the way the Redstones did. And that may make their problems seem utterly unrelatable. But for Rachel, a close study of the Redstone family's misfortunes revealed surprising lessons, lessons we can all learn from about what really matters in life. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. Rachel Abrams, welcome to the Next Big Idea Podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I want to start with a simple question, which is, who is Sumner Redstone? This is a guy who grows up in a Boston tenement without a bathroom and ends up owning and running one of the most powerful media companies in the world. How does he go from A to B? This was a guy who was very smart. He went to Harvard. He talked in his memoir about breaking Japanese codes during World War II. What won the war uh, prior to the bomb was, in fact, the sinking of the Japanese fleet, which was accomplished because we broke their codes. In order to understand Sumner's desire to win and his perception of himself as being invincible and needing to succeed at all costs, you have to go back to the fire at the Copley Hotel. This is in the late 70s. Sumner's on the third floor of an elegant hotel in downtown Boston, fast asleep, until the smell of smoke wakes him up. So he jumps out of bed and he goes to the door. But when he opens it a crack, flames jet into the room. So instead... He climbs out the window and holds onto the window ledge for dear life. And the fire basically burns up his hand. And he continues to hold on until he's rescued, even though God only knows how painful that must have been. And for the rest of his life, his hand was like pretty gnarled. And it was obviously scarred and malformed because of this. And he would use this story to say, like, if I could survive this, I could survive anything. And when he would be asked about succession planning, you know, who would take over his business after he died, he'd only half jokingly answer, well, I'm not going to die. I'm going to live forever. And people often speculated that, like, he really felt like he was going to live forever, that if he survived this crazy fire, that he really felt invincible. Um, and he didn't have any need to plan who would take over after him. And so 
this ruthless desire to win, if you want to try to understand that, the Copley fire is it, it really integral to understanding kind of how this man was built. I think the key word Rachel used there is ruthless. Because for everything that's admirable about Sumner Redstone, his contributions to the war, his tenacity, for me, that all kind of gets overshadowed by the fact that his personal conduct was abhorrent. Egregious. He was nasty to employees. He threw food at restaurants. He used a racist slur to describe Barack Obama. And one of the most frequent victims of Sumner's tirades? His own daughter, Sherry. This is a parent who is at times affectionate and then withholding to a child that until the day he dies continues to yearn for his love. And he could be at turns complimentary, but often abusive. I mean, this is a father who called his daughter the C word in company emails that other people saw. At first, that didn't make much sense to me because Sherry and Sumner were a lot alike. They were both smart and driven. They both had law degrees. They both had Boston accents. And Sumner had practically begged Sherry to join the family business, appointing her vice chair of CBS and Viacom, always dropping hints that maybe one day he'd actually put her in charge. But then I thought, well, isn't it true that sometimes you're hardest on the people who remind you of you? Another important thing to understand about this dynamic is that Sumner's desire to win at any cost also meant that he could not celebrate his daughter's success if it meant that it cost him anything. When he felt that she challenged his business decisions, those were some of the tension points where you would see their dynamic shifting. And he goes from praising her publicly to making it very clear he doesn't want her to succeed him. Which he also did publicly. Here's how Sumner reacted when he went on Michael Eisner's TV show. And Eisner asked him, who was in charge? Are you the boss? No, is your daughter Yes, the boss. I'm the boss. She works. She's the CEO and you're the CEO? I'm the CEO. She's you won't even give her the CEO job? No. She's your daughter. I know, but that's the way I control... Your daughter? Viacom, no, Viacom and CBS by yeah, controlling the stock. Yeah, but it's your family. You want I'm to here to pitch for her. I tell you what. No. You want to give away what you have to your family? Be my guest. I'm fine. Despite all of his awful behavior toward her, she's the one that has to swoop in and rescue him when he becomes really vulnerable and no longer able to protect himself from people who are just trying to take away his company and his money. This is where we get to the dark heart of the Redstone saga, the part of the story that makes succession look like happy days. Remember how Rachel said, if you want to understand Sumner, you have to go back to the fire at the Copley Hotel. There's another reason why that story reveals so much about his character. And it has nothing to do with how he survived. It's about who he was with. Sumner wasn't alone that night, but he wasn't with his wife. He was with his mistress. He had a lot of those in the 50 plus years he was married to Sherry's mom. And when their marriage finally imploded, those mistresses became, to be honest, I'm not really sure what to call them. Girlfriends, companions, neither really does justice to the fact that these aren't typical romantic relationships. For one thing, Sumner is an old man. Most of the action in Rachel's book takes place in the 2010s, when he was in his 80s, his late 80s. And the women he's quote-unquote seeing are half his age, or sometimes even younger. And he's not just seeing them, he's paying them. 
people think of business books often as being strictly about business, but inherently business stories are often people stories. They're about the people, very flawed people that run businesses and how those flaws affect those businesses. And this is such a good example of that because this is a story about a man whose greed, sexual appetites, abuse of people around him, vulnerability and desire for companionship, all of these things affected his business. What do I mean by that is he was gifting women millions of dollars in cash, in stock. He gave one woman a television show that was universally panned as being unwatchable. You know, do you think that the executives at his companies welcomed those phone calls? I don't think so. And this is a prime example of how his personal life was just seeping into the companies. And and I'll tell you a good story. There was an event where uh, Sumner was accompanied by a woman wearing a very revealing dress and very tall lucite stiletto heels. And a reporter sees this woman and turns to the top PR guy at Viacom and says, who's that woman? And the PR guy goes, that's his home health aide, you know, with a straight face. Her name was Sydney Holland. And yeah, she definitely wasn't a home health aide. So Sydney Holland was a an attractive brunette in her 40s. She had been married before. And she knows Patty Stanger, who is a millionaire matchmaker in Los Angeles. She's most famous for having a Bravo show um, called The Millionaire Matchmaker, where the whole premise of this show is that Patty Stanger assembles a, a group of conventionally attractive women uh, for cocktails, and they all have a chance to meet one millionaire and try to charm him. And he gets to have like his pick of all of these women. Welcome to the Millionaire's Club. I'm Patty Stanger, and I'm a third generation matchmaker who in the age of apps and instant gratification knows how to find true love. Patty Stanger tried to set Sumner up with a lot of different women and he was quite picky. And um, he eventually, you know, gets together with Sidney Holland and they hit it off. By which she means Sumner proposed. After less than a year. And Sidney said yes. To celebrate, he gave her a nine-carat diamond ring, and then cash, art, a Porsche, a house. All told, the gifts add up to around $10 million. When her lawyer helped her calculate her new net worth, he asked, starting to get some comfort? To which Sidney replied, 20 would be best. Just saying. But even as Sidney's bank balance ballooned and Sumner's age advanced, he was still the one with all the power. When Sidney moved into his 15,000-square-foot Beverly Hills mansion, their setup wasn't that of blissfully betrothed sweethearts. It was, well, here's how I put it to Rachel. This is a somewhat controlling relationship where Sumner is dictating all these things in her life, like she can't travel, she can't spend time with friends. Like, I think you say that she's... She can only go to sleep when he goes to sleep. I mean, he's he's really trying to sort of control her initially. Is that is that a fair read on the situation? Sumner's M.O. was to be controlling. He did not want the women in his life to see other men, even though he was able to see as many women as he wanted. You know, Patty Stanger warned Sidney Holland that Sumner was old school. And if he found out that she was cheating on him, like, he would not tolerate that, and she would she would basically be cut off. Spoiler alert, she should have taken that advice. Instead, though, she took up with an ex-con, washed-up actor, 
named George Pilgrim, who was a man living in Sedona, Arizona, that she was carrying on a secret affair with, flying the company jet to Sedona from Los Angeles, having a romantic afternoon, and then taking the jet back in time to be in bed with Sumner before he would notice that she was gone. You may be wondering, how is that possible? How could he not notice she was gone? Well, his health had declined pretty significantly by this point. He relied on round-the-clock nursing. He spent most of his days confined to his bed, staring at the stock ticker in his room that showed how CBS and Viacom were doing. Because yes, bedridden and pushing 90, he was still executive chairman of both companies. But it wasn't just Sumner's failing health that gave Sidney the window to sneak around behind his back. He was also distracted by another woman, one who'd recently moved into his mansion. Her name was Manuela Herzer. She was one of his ex-girlfriends. And yes, that's right, Sumner wouldn't tolerate Sidney stepping out, but he invited his ex to live in their house. But Sidney didn't mind, because as she quickly found out, she and Manuela had the same ambition. These women basically move into his mansion and take over his life. First, they cut Sumner off from his family. They blocked Sherry's calls. They whispered in his ear over and over again that Sherry was a greedy liar. And he believed them. So that when Sidney and Manuela told him to amend his will by writing them in and cutting his own daughter out, he did it. As Sherry later told one of her kids, if my father wants me to drop dead, he doesn't need to do anything else. He has made how he feels about me perfectly clear. So, okay, Sidney and Manuela have wormed their way into Sumner's heart and into his will. But here's the annoying thing about wills. You've got to wait for the person to die before you can get your hands on their money. And Sidney and Manuela, they're the impatient type. They want to get paid now. And so, in the spring of 2014, they start planning what Rachel calls their most brazen gambit by far. At the end of the day, they make off with at least $150 million. And I don't think people understand how close they actually came to taking over the business, too. We'll be right back. The LinkedIn Podcast Network is sponsored by TIAA. In the last 100 years, we've seen financial markets swing, new currencies come and go, decades of savings lost in days, all showing that a retirement plan without a guarantee, quite simply, isn't enough. So more than a retirement plan, TIAA makes you a retirement promise, a promise of a guaranteed retirement paycheck for life, a promise that pays off. Learn more at TIAA.org backslash promises pay off. From the minds of visionaries to the desks of disruptors, I'm Lars Schmidt, host of the Redefining Work podcast. Join me each week as we explore the new world of work through the lens of those shaping it. CEOs, HR leaders, investors, and more. Be a part of the conversation that changes everything. Subscribe to Redefining Work today. Today. 
Sumner Redstone is a billionaire several times over, but most of his money is tied up in trusts. He does, however, have more than $200 million in CBS and Viacom stock sitting in an unrestricted account. So Sidney Holland and Manuela Herzer, his live-in girlfriends, companions, they ask for it. Sumner resists. So they tell him, we're the only ones who love you. If you love us back, then you should cash out. If you don't, you'll die alone. Jesus. But that may have done the trick. Because Sumner sells his stock and wires $90 million to Sidney and Manuela. $45 million each. One thing I found myself, and maybe it suggests that I am just not a sufficiently shady, duplicitous person, but one thing I kept feeling as I read is, now they'll stop. But that's not at all. I mean, they keep going. They want control of the company. They're trying to get burial plots next to him. What is the end game here? I mean, do they just want complete and utter control? And is it just motivated by greed? Are they delusional? Do they think that they deserve this stuff? It's a really interesting question. Do people who would go to such extreme lengths to get that much money, is there a point at which you are satisfied? I mean, I can't speculate about them, obviously, but just in general, like, there are probably a lot of people out there that no amount of money will ever be enough. There will always be a bigger house, a bigger boat, a bigger rock, like a, mm-hmm. a bigger ring. And if you're not satisfied with a three and a half million dollar house or a $45 million wire transfer or proximity to one of the most powerful media figures, even in his decline, God only knows whatever is going to, you know, what's going to make you happy eventually. Um, but yeah, I don't know what their end game was, but certainly based on their behavior, it never seemed like it was enough money. They would say that they took care of him, that they were com- they offered companionship, that they helped take care of his needs. Um, his family would obviously say that they isolated him and siphoned off eventually at least $150 million all told. And I don't think people understand how close they actually came to taking over the business too. There are a lot of moments in the book where, where Sidney and Manuela are, are unbelievably cruel and, and I think in some ways endanger Sumner's life. What is his mental state at this point? I often joke that the book is a cross between King Lear and Weekend at Bernie's because Sumner was obviously so you know, unable to care for himself by the end when all these people are siphoning off tons of money from him and, mm-hmm. and, and interpreting his grunts to mean whatever it is they need that on that particular day. Right. But there are some really serious allegations of elder abuse in this book. And one of the things that Sidney Holland and Manuela Hertz are accused of having done is basically like mistreating him to the point where he, you know, he's, he cries at several points in this book. And with Sumner, there are flashes where he is lucid. And there's a lot of evidence that he is completely unable to make rational decisions. Clearly, he is being manipulated and he is vulnerable. And for all of his money and power, what's amazing to me, what shocked me about this book is that there weren't more guardrails up to protect him from people like Manuela or Sidney. The one thing I do think also it's worth noting is that this guy is really vulnerable. There's a lot of very valid questions about how uh, lucid he really is. 
he's still being paid to run to, for, by these companies. Like that's yes. the other thing that's mind boggling is he's still being paid millions and millions of dollars by CBS and Viacom. Corporate governance. I mean, this book really shows that corporate governance is how, what a sham it could be. The fact that he was so incompetent and getting paid millions and millions of dollars. Where were the directors whose job it was to look out for the shareholders? You know, it just it, it was it was a joke in many in many parts of this book. Let's bring his daughter Sherry back into the story. So she's been shut out by Sidney and Manuela and cut off from Sumner's life. Does she know what's going on? I mean, does she know through sources or through some kind of back channel what they're up to in terms of how they're taking his money or how they're treating him? One of the nurses in the mansion is so alarmed by what he sees that he reaches out to Sherry at one point to tell her that, you know, that he has real concerns about how her father's being treated. And so there is information getting to Sherry, but you have to also appreciate that this was really difficult for her to be listening to. I mean, hmm. how would you feel if you were effectively cut off from your dad and you're getting reports from his you know, a healthcare aid that he's being abused and there was nothing you could do about it. You know that Chinese proverb, if you wait by the river long enough, the bodies of your enemies will float by. That's kind of what happens to Sherry. The first body to float by, so to speak, is Sydney's. Remember that guy she was seeing on the side, George Pilgrim? He spills the beans on their affair. Manuela finds out about it, and she orders Sydney to go to Sumner and confess. And while Sydney's standing at Sumner's bedside, apologizing and begging for forgiveness, Manuela bursts in and starts making all these wild accusations. She says Sydney is a prostitute, that Sydney and George are conspiring to murder Sumner. She demands that he kick her out. And he does. One down, one to go. Cut to a typical morning at the Redstone family mansion. Sumner's in his bedroom, maybe, eating through a feeding tube, watching pre-recorded Red Sox games that he thinks are live. And Manuela is out shopping. But then a group of concerned nurses rush to Sumner's bedside and tell him about all the schemes and tricks Manuela has pulled. The way she cut off his family the secret camera she'd had installed in his bedroom. Sumner is shocked. He summons his lawyers and tells them he wants Manuela out of his will and out of his life. When she returns, Sumner has a simple message for her. Get out of my house. With Sidney and Manuela out of the picture, Sumner made other changes in his life. He finally resigned as executive chairman of CBS and Viacom which meant that Sherry, who despite everything had stayed on as vice chair of both companies, was now the Redstone family's sole representative in the boardroom. And something interesting happened when Sumner finally passed the torch to his daughter, the thing he'd refused to do for so long. It brought them closer together. The guy who called his daughter the C word in company emails, now so looked forward to seeing her that he had a clock installed in his bedroom so he'd know down to the minute how long until her next visit. And so if this was succession, that'd be the series finale. Sumner lying in bed, watching the clock tick down to zero. A door opens, Sherry's heels click clack on the floor, fade to black. But that's not what happened 
It was great that Sumner had finally empowered his daughter, but the years he'd spent fixated on Sidney and Manuela, instead of focusing on his businesses, had taken their toll. His empire had fallen on hard times, and now it was up to Sherry to pick up the pieces. What is the state of CBS Viacom at this point? I mean, Sumner has been asleep at the wheel effectively for the past several years. How is the company doing? What does Sherry find on her hands? So CBS under Les Moonves went from the least watched of the broadcast networks and it goes to the most consistently watched. If Sumner Redstone was the owner king of CBS, Les Moonves was the prince. As Rachel just mentioned, he engineered a turnaround that took the network from last to first place in the ratings. The Hollywood Reporter named him the most powerful person in entertainment, and he was rewarded handsomely, earning more than $700 million over the course of his career. So CBS and Les Moonves were thriving. But how about Viacom, the other big business the Redstones owned, the conglomerate that included Paramount Pictures, Nickelodeon, and MTV? Viacom, however, has, is, is basically, by 2016, stuck with a lot of businesses that are not making the money they once did. The business that made Sumner Redstone rich, which was these cable subscription fees, has mm. completely tanked. And so Nickelodeon, MTV, these things are not the juggernauts they once were. But Sherry has a plan to save the business. Merge Viacom and CBS. Moonves is completely opposed to this, okay? Although okay. he doesn't really tell her that. He kind of makes it seem to her like he's open to her ideas and her suggestions, but privately, he feels like she is meddling. And he does not want his CBS, which is doing well, to be attached to this company that is really struggling, Viacom. This, of course, doesn't just create tension between the two of them. It's embarrassing. Here's what happened when Sherry went to the New York Times Dealbook Summit in 2016 and was asked live on stage by journalist Andrew Ross Sorkin, about Les Moonves' merger reluctance. Let me ask you this. I saw Les Moonves at the Vanity Fair conference a couple of weeks ago, and I asked him, I, he was on the stage with me, and I said to him, is there a reason that this shouldn't happen? And he said, uh, because I'm too old and too rich. Well, you're going to almost leave me speechless at that, but I would say, having grown up in the family that I grew up in, one is never too old, uh, it's not about money. It's about getting the right thing done. And he also knows that if those two companies merge, he's going to lose some of his power, basically. Mm -hmm. So he doesn't want any of this. He doesn't want to be attached to a sinking ship. He does not want another executive handpicked by Sherry to come in and start bossing him around. And he thinks that she's meddling. So Les Moonves goes to the board behind Sherry's back and they start secretly working on a plan to get her out of the way, which they call subtly the nuclear option. They launch a lawsuit to strip her of control of the companies. And she is blindsided by this. She thought that she and Moonves were friends. She thought that mm -hmm. he was open to her ideas. And he is secretly all along, it turns out, texting with his top communications director, his the people that are loyal to him on the board. They're making all kinds of like godfather references. They're talking about how Sherry Redstone will never be manageable. I mean, first of all, can you even imagine them saying that about a male executive, mm -hmm. that, that that person wouldn't be manageable? One of the shocking things in your book is the consistent misogyny that Sherry Redstone faces. I mean, this is, first of all, the heir to the company, you know, 
the daughter of, of Sumner Redstone, but also a, a lawyer, a, by all accounts, an incredibly sophisticated, smart, capable, talented business person. And yet she's constantly facing these situations where like members of the board physically intimidate her, call her little girl. I mean, it's just, it's just unconscionable. And I think speaks to the fact that they, they just thought that, you know, they were men and they had impunity. I made the point earlier that business stories are often human stories about very flawed people. And this is such a good example of how the personal uh, animus, greed, sexism, all of these things motivated decisions that ultimately shaped the future of this company. You know, that that would, would Les Moonves have been as annoyed by Sherry if she was a man? Would the board have taken her seriously enough to not to sue her? And would Sumner have hemmed and hawed for so long about whether Sherry was really a competent heir to, to you know, to succeed him? Thereby really undermining her, you know, I mean, if he had decided from the jump she's great and I'm going to support her. He really could have set her up, I think, in a different way to not end up in a situation where she had to swoop in after he's undergone this terrible, embarrassing situation. The company is struggling. They've fallen behind Netflix and Amazon. She's got to put the pieces back together. And she's been out of power and pushed to the side for so long that she can't command the respect that that she deserves. What's also amazing about this is that the Me Too movement is going on. There are powerful mm-hmm. men in media and in, and in other industries who are being felled every day by accusations of misconduct. So this is happening in the background while Moonves is hatching this plan. And he has already been asked whether or not some rumors about his personal conduct are going to make trouble for the company. Because there, there are starting to be whispers that Moonves, oh, he's going to be next. You know, the Weinstein story has broken. Matt Lauer has broken. Charlie Rose has broken. And there are starting to be rumors about Moonves. Sherry Redstone hears these rumors and she pushes for an investigation. She wants to make sure that they, you know, there's nothing to worry about. Moonves tells her there's nothing to worry about. Moonves tells a lawyer that CBS hires to interrogate him. There's nothing to worry about. And by the way, that investigation is just a farce. The, the CBS board, which, by the way, is packed with Moonves loyalists, mostly men, older white men, and they hire this outside lawyer who essentially just asks Moonves, hey, did you ever did you ever do anything we should be worried about? And Moonves says, nope. And that's basically it. And like that's the extent of the investigation into Moonves's conduct and whether it's a liability for this you know, multi-billion dollar company. With the board on his side, Moonves presses on with his lawsuit. And then... Now to new developments in those bombshell allegations against the head of CBS. The New Yorker releasing an expose by Ronan Farrow featuring allegations from six women against the CBS chairman that range from inappropriate kissing to sexual assaults. New questions are being raised about a possible connection between the sexual misconduct allegations against Les Moonves and a corporate legal battle. So I remember reading Ronan Farrow's story about Les Moonves uh, which came out in 2018, in which six women accused him of of sexual misconduct um, and several accused him of assault. What I didn't either remember or realize until reading your book is that the initial reaction within CBS, within the halls of power on the board, was not to say, less is out, he's gone, we have to try to move on. It was actually to try to close ranks around him, right? I mean, it seemed initially like he had the internal support of the board, that he was not suspended, he was not immediately dismissed. It seems like they thought he, he, it was going to blow over or he was going to be able to ride this out. 
Yeah, this is one of the most remarkable parts of the story. If it had just been the women in The New Yorker, Moonves might still have his job because the reaction inside of CBS was one of his board members said, we all did that in response to some of the serious allegations. Another board member said in an email, you know, something to the effect of, I don't care if a hundred more women come forward, less is our guy. And it's like, he, I'm sorry, he's not your guy. You are there to protect shareholders. You are not there to close ranks around a man who is, from for a, all available evidence, turning into a greater liability, a bigger and bigger liability. There were two New Yorker stories. There was the first one you mentioned with six women. There was a second one that came out with another six women. So in total, 12 women have told the New Yorker credible allegations of sexual misconduct by Les Moonves. But then what happens is Vanity Fair publishes an article that discloses that Moonves separately from the New Yorker articles, had allegedly assaulted his diabetes doctor. And this is the first time that the board actually kind of sits up straighter and is like, oh, wow, a doctor, really? And to me, like, this is one of the many examples of sexism here because it was not enough for 12 women to tell the New Yorker for them to take it seriously. It had to be a doctor. A woman had to be a doctor to be taken seriously as it related to this this kind of stuff. Tonight, Les Moonves is departing as chairman and CEO of CBS. Les Moonves is out amid new accusations of sexual misconduct. He's exit part of an ongoing corporate battle for control of CBS. Correct me if I'm wrong, but I think there's people within CBS or even on the board who think, oh, well, this is Sherry. She, she's leaking stuff. She's trying to smear less. This is her play to yep. win back control because we're caught in this in this fight for power. And so this is just all, this is a put up job. The board of CBS was very quick to believe the worst rumors about Sherry based on very little evidence that she had planted these stories. And they were very quick to dismiss credible allegations against Les Moonves. Coming up, Sherry Redstone does things her way. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Hey, have you heard about our new podcast? It's called The Next Big Idea Daily. Every weekday, in just 10 minutes or less, you get a masterclass from folks like Jonah Berger, Adam Gopnik, Jesse Hempel on better, smarter living. And it's hosted by Michael Kovnat, one of our co-founders here at The Next Big Idea Club, whose voice is way nicer to listen to than mine. Follow The Next Big Idea Daily wherever you get your podcasts. You know, one thing I found myself thinking over and over as I read your book, it's a page turner. The depth of the reporting is unbelievable. But I also like once or twice wrote in the margins something to the effect of this is a story about unlikable people doing unsavory things. And you've done a really important act of, of journalism and storytelling and public service to shed light on those unlikable people doing unsavory things. But I wonder what it was like for you and for your, your co-writer, James Stewart, to live in that world because it is so cringeworthy. Jim has written 10 books before. This is his 11th book. And um, he has been saying, you know, 
thought I couldn't be surprised anymore, but, <laughs> but I guess not, you know, I, when you've been a journalist long enough, obviously, you know, you can counter all sorts of unsavory behavior, but you're right. The level of greed and sexism and, and, and hubris and just, ugh, there's so much bad behavior in this book. And at the end of the day, it makes you think like, wow, I'm really glad that I, I have people in my life that care about me. And, you know, I'm also, I'm never going to have the problems that Sumner Redstone has, unless your audience wants to buy, you know, 3 billion copies of this book. (laughs) You know, I don't, I don't think that like my personal wealth and fortune is ever going to cause me the kind of problems that he had, but you know, it just made me really grateful for the things that actually matter, friends, family, relationships. I think that was kind of the big takeaway. Do you think we will ever move as a culture, as a society, away from this absurd and dangerous deification of these powerful male business moguls? Well, it's hard to imagine a time that money is not going to be equated with some level of competency. I think that's just the culture that we live in. But in media and in Hollywood, the era of the media mogul who is known for being a bully, a misogynist, a sexist, an abuser, that era, I think, is over. I think it's over for a number of reasons. Number one, big Hollywood companies are so corporately controlled the creative genius running around town doing what he wants, like that doesn't really exist anymore without, right. without you know, more oversight. There's also like a technology aspect to this. You have TMZ. Everybody has an iPhone to mm. capture, you know, videos of your bad behavior. You cannot get away with the kind of behavior that Harvey Weinstein once did. And I don't mean the sexual assault and misconduct. I mean punching a reporter outside of a party because you don't like something that he wrote, which Hart, which Weinstein did. Like, someone's going to capture that on video. So I, I just think the era of Hollywood mogul as bully and mm. abuser, I do think that's just not, we're not going to see that. Sumner Redstone, the billionaire media tycoon, has died at the age of 97. He turned his family-owned drive-in theater business into an empire that included Viacom, Paramount Pictures, and CBS. Viacom CBS released a statement minutes ago saying he was a brilliant visionary, operator, and deal maker. You know, the book ends with this really evocative scene of Sherry Redstone standing over her father's grave and singing Frank Sinatra's My Way, which was which was Sumner's favorite song. And of course, there's sort of a double meaning there because Sumner Redstone always seemed to get his way. But in the end, so does Sherry. I mean, she ends up on top. The thing that she wanted, I think, the control of, of the family business is hers, and she's, she's firmly in charge. Where do you come down on Sherry? Do you admire her? Do you respect her? Given how much sexism she faced in this family business where her father started these companies, I, I, think, it's, I think it's inspirational that she essentially won, that she won out in the end. I think what is unquestionable is that there were many, many obstacles in her way to prevent her from her running these companies the way that she is now. And the fact that she did overcome those obstacles, the fact that she faced so much sexism and it still did not ultimately topple her, I think that that should be inspirational. I also think it's like kind of depressing, to be honest. Mm, you know, the yeah. fact that this is still this is still going on now. I mean, the fact like. It, one of the board members grabbed her chin at one point and she, you know, when she admonished him, he was like, well, I'm just treating you like I would treat my daughter. She goes, I'm not your daughter. You know, I like 
Right. I'm the chair of the board of which you on which you serve. Yeah, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. And I just what's depressing about it is like, oh God, why did she need to overcome all of this stuff? Why was this allowed yeah. to why were these people allowed to be in the positions, these cushy jobs, like being on the board of director where you get paid all this money to go to a few meetings and you're supposed to have oversight, but clearly you didn't. Like mm-hmm. these were the people that were able to cause her so much trouble. It's sad to think about the fact that this is just the one case study that we know of. This is the one, you know, this is the one family drama we looked into. This is the one family empire. Like, it just makes you wonder what's going on at all these other companies that we don't have any idea about. Yeah. Well, we won't have any idea until you write your next book. <laughs> Rachel Abrams, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you. Unscripted is is truly fantastic. It's, I think it's better than Succession. Um <laughs> Maybe it's weirder. Uh, yeah, who thought? You didn't know it could get weirder than Succession, but it turns out it can. Thank you so much for, for being here today. Thank you. Rachel Abrams' new book, which she co-wrote with James B. Stewart, is called Unscripted, The Epic Battle for a Media Empire and the Redstone Family Legacy. This episode was written and produced by me, Caleb Bissinger, sound design by Mike Toda, our executive producer, is Rufus Griscom. The Next Big Idea is a proud member of the LinkedIn Podcast Network. See you next week.